welcome to Indonesia Digital Deconstructed, where we break apart and dive deep into the different parts of the Indonesian tech scene to get an insider's look into how each space is evolving. Leveraging off our research, proprietary insights, and working with leading entrepreneurs, we'll bring you the insider's view of the industry as we navigate our way around one of the world's fastest growing tech scenes. Welcome back to IDD. I'm your host, Leighton Kossaboom, head of PR and comms at AC Ventures. Today, we continue our Mindshare series where we invite expert guests to have group discussions on current events in Asia's tech scene. This episode is all about the future of crypto in emerging Asia. The possibilities for crypto in Southeast Asia are many. The region has a rapidly growing population with a high adoption of tech, making it prime for crypto. Governments are taking steps to regulate the industry, while businesses are exploring the use of crypto for payments and remittances. The region also has a large unbanked population, presenting a huge opportunity for financial inclusion via crypto. Despite some challenges, including lack of infrastructure and concerns over security, the future of crypto in Southeast Asia looks ripe for growth. But that said, it's hard to have a meaningful conversation about this without also addressing the broader implications of the FTX implosion. With us today are multiple experts. Jesse Choi is the COO of Reku, a leading Indonesian crypto exchange that gives users a powerful and trusted platform to invest, buy, and sell various crypto assets. Hassan Ahmed is the head of Southeast Asia at Coinbase, the second largest crypto exchange in the world right now. It's a secure online platform for buying selling, transferring, and storing crypto. And it aims to create an open financial system for the world. And of course, with us today is Pandu Sharir, founding partner of AC Ventures. Guys, thank you for joining today. Ah, thanks. Thanks, thanks Lee. So yeah, I just want to throw a question out there and I want to invite you guys to answer it in your own ways or, or add on to it, if you will. So just life after FTX, the implosion happened. Where do we go from here? What keeps crypto intact as an asset class for the long term? I think, Hassan, I would like to start with you and then maybe we can go down the line to, to Pandu and Jesse as well. Thanks for having me, Leighton. So I'll start by saying that, you know, one of the things we we repeat a lot within Coinbase is that it's never as good as it seems and it's never as bad as it seems. And I think that we've gone through a pretty severe reset in the last sort of nine months, somewhat capped off by the FTX saga. But if you rewind back and look through kind of different crypto cycles, in 2013, Mount Gox was the leading crypto exchange at the time, and they had over 70% global market share. And when Mount Gox went down, that was a severe shock to a very fragile industry at that time, and crypto was able to persevere through that. So fast forward back to today, you know, we're much more developed. There's much more sophisticated infrastructure and, and players around the ecosystem. And while the centralized sort of intermediary did go down and, you know, had a shock to the system, I think it's, we're very resilient at this point. And we're already sort of seeing signs of, you know, making our way through it. Part of the reason why this is also happening is, you know, it's the, the capital markets around crypto is more sophisticated, but also there's just more developer energy and just more use cases that are being built. And there's a lot of dry powder on the sidelines that are waiting to fund both the, the private markets as well as the public kind of token markets around crypto. So on a first principles basis, yes, there was a lot of you know uncertainty and fear as we were kind of going through, especially in November. But my personal take is, is that we're, the worst of it is sort of behind us and we can kind of get back to, to focusing on things that matter more. So, yeah, addressing the, the resilience of, of crypto, Pandu, just want to hear your thoughts, uh, you know, as, a, as an investor on multiple fronts. Yeah, I think, you know, crypto 
I probably agree a bit with Hassan, but maybe the main difference here is because uh, government and then therefore regulators uh, have seen that crypto plays now a larger part in the society that they live in. So now they've stepped in, right? I guess the positive part that crypto is now playing a bigger part in society, which then also means government is now seeing that, hey, we got to do something about this. And the way they see it is because of potential moral hazard associated with it. So, you know, probably the difference is that crypto, you know, historically started because of the 08 financial crisis, where people lose trust to the government, the role of government, the role of central banks, right? And they're trying to create, uh, I guess this is my own analysis, yeah, my own view, utopian way of looking at finance and to look at the way people interact with one another. And now that it has become an important part important enough part of society, government in the world, around the world, is now stepping in, right? And, you know, what has happened, you know, the issue of moral hazard strengthened because of the issue of FTX and others, right, that is coming out because of the downfall of the industry. And essentially what is happening today, and I'm just being realistic today, right, is that government around the world is stepping in. So I guess what's what's so interesting is that crypto itself is supposed to be non-regulated, but maybe because of man, mankind, now there's role of regulation has stepped in. And, you know, it's so interesting to see what will happen the next six to 12 months in the area and the market we operate in because the securities that is being traded is global in nature, right? And this is fascinating. The securities we're trading is global in nature, but the regulation is local in nature. So what will happen in terms of money flows, in terms of how flows of funding will happen. And, you know, this is, I guess I'm leaving it open-ended for now. I have my own thesis of how it will flow, but how will local players versus global players uh, compete in this new world? And that for me is fascinating looking at this. I don't, I'm not saying that crypto will no longer be there. In fact, I think crypto will get stronger over time because it matters in the society that we live in. Now, the question is, how will government play regulation? And this is local government, right, playing, playing that role. So, again, open-ended question for now, but we can go through it. And it seems every time, you know, there is this, this down cycle, this, you know, there's always seems to be this fiasco that happens in the crypto game, but then emerges, you know, a bit more resilient and a bit stronger thereafter as a result of these down cycles. So, so Jesse, uh, just want to open the, open the door for you to comment on that or expand upon what Pandu was getting at there. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with what both Hassan and Pandu have mentioned. I think uh, just thinking about the FTX thing, it's, now, is it, is it a good thing that it happened? Of course not. But did it kind of shed light or bring, bring forward the, some kind of bifurcation, right? There's a group of people who see crypto as a very positive thing. And then, of course, with something like crypto, where it's so exciting and also so broad in its mandate, there's a group of people who are more willing to take advantage of that. And so I think it brought that kind of bifurcation to light. And it's in some ways, what happened with FTX is kind of a good thing. It weeds out, I think, uh, worse players in that way. For every one less bad actor in this world, in the crypto world, I think that's a good thing, all things considered. Now, and then as a result of that, the, you know, more and more regulatory bodies are stepping in. That's not, like Pandu mentioned, it's kind of not really in the, in the spirit of what crypto stood for initially, at least. But, you know, I think that's kind of just the nature of things. And given where we are, yeah, I mean, increased protection to the consumer uh, is definitely a good thing, right? Again, on a, on a pros and cons, on a micro scale, maybe less good, but on a macro scale in the long term, I, I do think it's probably a 
that positive to the, at least to the consumer uh, and that positive to the crypto world in general. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's the way that we see it would, I think, would we have wanted it to be that way? Not necessarily, but is the world kind of reacting in the right way and is regulatory bodies stepping in and hopefully in the right direction? Yeah, I think, I think all signs point to, you know, at least for me to be relatively optimistic going forward. So actually, I want to open the floor. I think you may have some some timely questions on your mind that you might want to ask to Hassan or Pandu. So yeah, the floor is yours, Jesse. Do you have any anything you'd like to ask them? Yeah, I mean, I think just the, you know, <laughs> Pandu left it on a bit of a cliffhanger, you know, in terms of he's got this, he's got his own thesis around how this all plays out. But, you know, of course, nobody knows for sure yet. But I would love to hear, yeah, what you have in mind in terms of that how the local versus the global kind of that all shakes out regulatorily. Mm, this is short term thesis because it always plays out. But the at the end, the customers always want something safe and something cheap or of value. Maybe not cheap, of value. So whatever that they pay, they get the service right that they pay for right. So for example, you know in Indonesia, there's a regulation that for every fee that you transacted, you have to pay a final tax. But imagine today, because of technology, you have VPN. For example, they open a Treku, Jesse, right? And you have to pay a final tax, whatever, 0.11% tax, right? But imagine they can go to Hassan's platform outside and you have to pay zero. I just have to sign up for VPN, right? So imagine the amount of potential money outflow that can come. That in itself poses risk to the system because anything to do with crypto has to do with, you know, in economic terms, being a bit nerdy here, M0 and M1, right? Money flow. What happened if that money flow actually moved not to Reiku, but moved to Coinbase in Singapore, right? How will you be able to oversee it? I'm just giving an example. So imagine, I mean, the way government always plays is oversight and then income, which is tax, right? So right now, globally, people around the world in exchange try to make it as fast and easy as possible. The other one that I think also will be regulated is related to uh, leverage, Right? You can always play leverage, and that's one way because young people like to see make so much money right away, one day, two days, right? And you, that's where you see the vols, the volatility of it. You know, in, in capital market, this is actually similarly, it's just capital market being put into the crypto market. So imagine leverage, you can do two to one, three to one. How are you going to regulate that? Is it only for those you consider high net worth? So the definition of high net worth individuals. Or regular folks. And in, in, I think in Singapore, if I'm not mistaken, there's one for ultra high net worth that you can do leverage. But again, Hassan, please correct me because I'm, I'm not in Singapore jurisdiction. Will Indonesia implement the same, right? Because if you have young people earning $1,000 a month and then suddenly they put their life savings there and leverage it three to one and lost it all, who did, will they blame? They'll blame Reku. They'll blame regulators. People never blame themselves, right? They always blame others first. So these are the type of things that I would say, you know, Jesse, for, you know, your business, this is something that to, to be concerned, you know, how to make sure that the money flow doesn't go out of the system in Indo. Because again, as I said before earlier, the securities is global. You're trading global products. It's not like buying shares. I'm not buying shares in Telcom or Singtel where it's local. I'm buying Ethereum, which is traded globally. Now, so those are top, Top two things in mind in very short term, right? Yeah, if I can just jump in as well. I'm glad that we're we're talking about this because I, I think it's you know hard to talk about crypto and not talk about regulations and, and how this is sort of moving forward. Because one of the big unlocks for crypto to move to its next phase has to be around regulatory clarity. You know, especially I think as one of you mentioned, 
we're getting to the point of sort of crossing the chasm on crypto. So the early kind of adopters, you know, that like eight to 12% of adoption, like that's sort of roughly what we're seeing across Southeast Asia as well. And now to get to kind of that like early majority, you know, this is kind of one of the big things that is on everyone's mind. When we talk to institutions, we ask them, hey, what's kind of preventing you from like allocating more towards crypto? They like the fundamental thesis, many of them, but this is one of the big gray areas that they're looking for for more for more clarity on. And one of the big idiosyncrasies about crypto, like you mentioned, right? I, I don't think they're all necessarily securities. I think most of them are classified as, as commodities, but they're bare assets at the end of the day. So it's not just that you're even like, you know, dealing with intermediaries across jurisdictions. You can also withdraw them to your own self-hosted wallets. And so now you have this patchwork of both kind of, you know, intermediaries at different gradations of jurisdictional kind of accountability, but also you you have like people who can just withdraw to their own wallet and then, you know, take it around. So it's very vexing, I think, if, if you're trying to kind of, you know, put this into existing, you know, frameworks and every jurisdiction, every regulator kind of goes through this thought exercise of, should I just implement, you know, based on top of what's something that exists or should I try to come up with something de novo? So coming back to, hey, we'll just kind of, we have a registration regime that's like focused on AML and let's just start there. Right. So, so I think this, this point about like, yeah, the, the local and global as well, kind of my point of view here is that I, what I've seen is where regulators have kind of leaned into providing some kind of a starter framework for companies to set up shop and have it just generally be permissive while kind of providing guardrails and just a lot of disclosures. Those have tended to do well. Like if you compare like Philippines, you know, in, in our neighborhood, for example, they were very early on, like 2017, they had a sandbox, 2018, they published their BCE framework. They're actually now starting to see kind of the fruit of their labor in a sense. You know, play to earn, like, you know, happening in Philippines is not a coincidence. It's because like people were kind of used to it before. And when the short, like, you know, Axie as a specific game has, has had its trajectory, but the kind of FDI that they were able to really kind of pull in because they, they had that set up already. I think is at one point it was like 30% of you know, their total remittances that were coming in from SLP. So, so that's the kind of, I think, unintended benefits along with the unintended you know, consequences that regulators should be thinking about as well. And you know, another thing, Hassan, you know, we talk about securities, the issuance or we haven't discussed this because it hasn't, it's been two years since we had something like this, the issuance of new coins. So ICO, right? And imagine how are you going to regulate new ICO? Who's the one who says this ICO is legit or not? How do you make sure? So you got, you put quite a bit of trust to the coin basis of the world, right? The, the exchanges, the global exchanges of the world, they say, you know what, these are kosher. But I'm sure, for example, the Coinbase of the world, when you look at ICO, you probably have been following from the very beginning, the developer. So even before that came out, you know, right? Because obviously the top three, four exchanges in the world are probably the first one to see, you know, any new development that are coming in, right? So how can, say, for example, Indonesian regulators say, oh, this new ICO can be traded in Indo? You know, think questions of this because you're usually... Imagine in the stock market, regulators can be three months, six months behind. How would it be in the market like this where things develop very fast, right? Even though the development is already two years, three years before that, right? So maybe that's another interesting point when you talk about new securities issues. I call it securities, this, this coin offerings, right? Yeah, I, I think primary the primary market is another side of this, which you know doesn't get as much airplay right now. 
I think Thailand has sort of came up with their kind of ICO license last year. So, so we're kind of following that a little bit to see how it plays out. But generally, I think the idea, to your point, Pandu, is just create more accountability and transparency up front and, you know, set a set of standards out, right? Because right now it's just very wild east, right? Like anyone can go sort of do anything on an offshore jurisdiction, but even kind of have appropriate disclosures, basic things like, you know, what's your tokenomics and what's your supply schedule? Like it's sometimes it's hard to get like even basic information about that. You know, issuers come to us for listings. We have a very rigorous kind of, you know, listings process that we're able to, you know, take, go through. And then, you know, there's specific disclosures that we're able to do. That's more of a, you know, the market's kind of doing, you know, what they're doing. There's a demand supply there. But what I I do agree that regulators can play a very critical role. And, you know, even traditional, I'd say, exchanges that are looking at like, you know, tokenized securities or just kind of tokenized crypto assets. There's probably a role here that they can play because they have distribution already. Yeah, it's a hard job to be a to be a regulator. I think <laughs> it's very complicated. I, I think it also comes down to what the the incentives are because I think all local regulate regulatory bodies have kind of very slightly different incentives. And uh, yeah, I'm curious to see how those all mingle together. Like, I think the Indonesian regulatory body has quite a different set of incentives than like the U.S. ones, for example. And so. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's complicated and, you know, the, the exchanges like Reku and Coinbase are the ones who feel the blunt of it. I love that point. And, you know, none of these decisions are, are in a vacuum, right? It's all like heavily contextualized, you know, with, with Indonesia, for example, like, I know I'm jumping a little bit over the place, but, you know, one of the things that, that I do think that Indonesia is talking about and maybe has an opportunity is tokenized carbon credits, right? So you can, you know, really kind of focus on like a very specific use case that Indonesia has a structural advantage on because it's a sort of net, you know, producer. And then how do you fuse that both kind of the, the resource advantage and the existing financial infrastructure rails and blockchain technology to make it work in a way that that can really be beneficial, you know, for the country and, and for the, the policy goals that these regulators are trying to achieve. Pandu, have we seen any any companies doing that, tokenized carbon credits? No, I think carbon credit, everybody, I mean, obviously it's an asset class that's growing really fast. Uh, there's also regulatory issues related to carbon credit because don't forget, because of the Paris Agreement, it is a local issue. A bit different than, say, Ethereum. I'm just calling whatever, right? Ethereum is, is an example. Again, I see carbon credits as another securities, right, that could be traded. But the problem is it's actually in the issuance. Government can regulate it. Everyone has what they call, in a way, a domestic market that they need to meet to be able to fulfill the Paris Agreement. So for Indonesia, it's 2060. There's a certain number you have to follow. So there is regulation related to it that can affect price, right? This will affect essentially price, and it also affects supply. So I don't want to go there too much because that's going to be a, man, that's going to be a long discussion on it. We've been paying a lot of attention on, on carbon credit, too, because I just find it very interesting. And Indonesia will be or is the largest supplier of carbon credit in the world. Essentially, it is the lung of the earth, right? So now everybody's also kind of, you know, it's almost like land grabbing, trying to figure out how it will get traded uh, because there's a huge arbitrage, right? Out of Indonesia, you pay, you get 8 to $10 and you can then sell it down in Europe for about $80 per ton. Huge arbitrage, right? And the market is very localized, very different than, say, Ethereum or Bitcoin, global price. The question is actually quite transparent, very easy to see. It's now more just about accessibility and taxation for the end user, the buyer of it, which is two, two very different market in my view. But I can definitely see the Coinbase of the world. I'm sure, Hassan, you've been doing a lot of work on it. How can I use that as a security that I can trade in my platform because I already have the infrastructure for it? So 
So I want to zoom out for a second. I mean, obviously, 2022 was a very tumultuous year on multiple fronts for the crypto space. So, you know, one point, you know, you, you probably heard your hairdresser talking about NFTs, right? And so I would just kind of want to look at the hype, the boom and bust, if you will, in terms of metaverse, Web3, NFTs, and kind of just separate the winners from the losers in terms of use cases. And uh, just kind of want to hear, Jesse, did you think that perhaps some of this Web3 and metaverse stuff was a bit just kind of fever dreams? Or are there some very practical uses for non-fungible tokens that you see? Without a doubt, there is definitely an element of hype. You know, I think about many things in life as kind of a bit of a pendulum, right? It swings one way and I think it's actually pretty similar to maybe what Hassan said at the beginning about it's never as bad or it's never as good, right? It swings one way and it swings negative and positive and that's just kind of how it works. And I think it's undeniable that, you know, Web3, Metaverse, these these kind of words were maybe on one side of the pendulum where there was a lot more hype. But I actually think that, I mean, during the time when, uh, when it's, if we're talking specifically about NFTs, right? During the time that NFTs, the price of them dropped, and so the, the the demand of them dropped. Increasingly, more companies were getting into it, right? Like in the last six months, Rolex, Porsche, uh, Nike, Adidas. I mean, a, a lot of these kind of premium and lifestyle type brands really got more into NFTs, and and they started leaning into it to drive their own community and their own culture, right? So. I actually think that there's there's real use cases, primarily culturally and socially, and 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 also from like the enterprise point of view when it comes to NFTs. When it comes to you know broader topics like metaverse or Web three, which is super super broad, I think those are yeah I've always believed that those are a few years out. I think there's still a lot of development, a lot of super smart people and smart money going into those spaces. So. Yeah, but I think those have those have always been a few years out. Uh, but I think, yeah, I mean, pace of development is still definitely there. So I think it's still quite exciting from my point of view. I just kind of want to hear, Hassan, what are your thoughts about, you know, what are the major developments that you see happening or that you believe are going to happen in 2023 and beyond for crypto in Indonesia specifically? Yeah, I, so so just on, on picking up on what Jesse was also saying, I, I'm actually surprised by how quickly Web3 and NFTs took off. And I think it's that's a, just a characteristic of, you know, this is like an emergent, uh, you know, field of there's just use cases that are being worked on all the time. And it's pretty hard to predict what's actually going to, quote unquote, take off or, or you know, capture mind share or Im- imagination in a certain way. So it's so very excited to see how non-financialized, you know, decentralized applications are also going to be taking off. Now, in terms of, you know, what's sort of coming up this year, I'd say, uh, you know, we've talked about uh, regs at length. I'd say that just at an infrastructure layer, this work on scalability continues. I think that has to kind of, you know, keep sort of going up by a couple of more orders of magnitude to have like mass consumer apps ready for deployment. And then finally, I think just usability and just the UX aspect of, of crypto, still like just, you know, very difficult. It's actually surprising how many people use crypto despite you know, in some ways, like the industry almost trying to prevent from, from getting to it. I think some of the more exciting kind of cutting edge things that are happening right now is decentralized identity is getting a lot of attention in play. I think this is because the, the concept of, you know, having an identity and attestation that, again, that you can control or is not controlled by one single company that can, like, you know, censor block you out of the system, uh, I think has, has sort of really a lot of play and, and, and kind of capture. So, so there's various standards, but... I do think that this is going to, you know, get hardened, you know, more this year. One of the things that we're sort of experimenting with is how can we provide on-chain attestations as well? So, you know, we do all the sort of KYC, 
all regulated financial institutions and fintechs to KYC, but everyone's doing it in their own silo, right? And so the, there, there's a kind of rule of reliance here that like you cannot rely on anyone, any other intermediaries, you know, diligence, but you can take in signals as risk signals from, from other kind of aspects of that like user, including kind of their on-chain activity. So, so we're trying to work through with sort of the industry of, you know, how we can actually productionalize that and kind of really, you know, bring it into force and, you know, let's see what comes out of that. I think at the consumer application layer, especially kind of Indonesia, Southeast Asia, like blockchain gaming, I think really is, you know, getting a lot of play and excitement. And I think to me, the core of it is how do you infuse digital property rights into your games that are also fun to play and, and, you know, promote collaboration and how do you like tokenize these game economies? And then finally, the the last one that's a little more kind of, you know, uh, global is just decentralized social media. So some of the projects that I'm like following very closely are Lens Protocol, you know, out of Aave and then Farcaster is another one. But I think they're also just showing the ways of like, how can you, you know, own your own sort of content and IP in some ways. But also what's more exciting is how do you compose these kinds of applications and like, you know, fuse value transfer and payments experiences into the product itself in a way that like just pure Web2 doesn't allow for. Actually, I, I wanted to know what Hassan is seeing now in the market. Obviously, in the beginning, before the podcast started, you're seeing that it's probably, hopefully, it's already at the bottom. But just want to see where you're thinking about flows. Are you seeing the type of thing I'm seeing that flows are coming out, etc. So just, just curious, especially coming out of Indonesia, right? Because there's so much, so many users that are here. Uh, so I'm just curious, what do you see the next six months in terms of flows, uh, sentiment, etc.? Yeah, I mean, this, this is just my own personal opinion, but I, I think that for Indo in, in particular, you know, there's still like just so much headroom for growth, right? I think the last kind of published numbers were like in the 12 to 15 million kind of crypto, you know, user range. I think that, you know, especially with locally registered and locally licensed, you know, companies that are being set up for fiat on-ramps, I think this will only, you know, like record this will only continue to accelerate. I think there's just general kind of excitement, especially at the retail level to continue to kind of get both exposure, but also like increasingly use crypto in these dApps. We, we Coinbase Wallet, which is like our self-custodial product, has seen a lot of strong uptake across Southeast Asia, including in Indonesia. So we do think that like users are getting more sophisticated more quickly, which is exciting to see. There's also the institutional layer as well. So both kind of family offices and, and just, you know, more kind of specific funds and asset managers, as well as just, you know, companies. So we're seeing kind of appetite for, you know, usage of our custody product, our, our kind of, you know, execution venue. We have a product called Coinbase Prime, which allows for multi-venue execution and financing. So we're getting pretty strong inbound to kind of upgrade, like, you know, their infrastructure as like these companies prepare themselves for the next level of growth. And then finally, just, we haven't talked about stable coins yet, by the way, which, which is also very, very relevant for, you know, many of these kind of markets, including Indo, but we're a co-issuer of USDT along with Circle. Uh, so like projects that like raised in the last cycle and they're being much more diligent about like managing their treasury. They they can manage their USDC with us on our institutional platform and and you know earn a yield on or on it as well. So so I think the next six months we're probably, you know, just sort of getting through kind of the, the last vestiges of of you know the, the the wreckage, so to speak. But there is a lot of healthy appetite both retail and and, and store to do more. Sorry, Hassan, just a quick question. Do you see the difference between, I mean, there's really two uh, between you um, CZ's business, right? And do you see there's a real difference between Chinese flow and American flow? Do the Americans only go to you or did they also trade at Binance? Or because of what's happening between US and China, does it affect your business in that way in terms of flow? 
So the origin of money for you? Yeah, I mean, the, the U.S. has its own very deep, very complex market, right? So even if other offshore players want to service the U.S., I think they know better than to try to do it on a cross-border basis is, is my sentiment. So so the U.S., I think, you know, we obviously have like a, a dominant position there and, and that just, you know, is sort of pretty much kind of, you know, well underway and, and you know, things are progressing well on that front. I think for, for cross-border flows at a, at a global level, you know, we... We haven't sort of started seeing kind of that much, you know, uptake, just like reflecting on kind of even global liquidity and global volumes. But the one one of the specific things that I'm keeping an eye on is Hong Kong's recent announcement about their intent to, you know, publish a licensing framework as well. For a long time, it was just, it was this opt-in framework that, you know, a couple of companies like OSL and others had sort of taken up, but they're really, I think, supercharging that and, and, to be honest, I think it's a little bit of, you know, they're seeing kind of the success that, you know, Singapore has had in terms of attracting flows and, and they're trying to just defend against that. So, you know, I'm not close enough to kind of China flows per se, but I, I do expect the Hong Kong reopening will most likely have an impact. What do you think, Jesse, about your flow? Curious too. How is it going domestically? I know you guys have been doing very well the last three months. I saw the numbers coming out, but where do you see the next two, three months for you as well? Yeah, we, we've been gaining a lot of market share, which is nice. But from a more macro point of view, I think maybe this also kind of ties what we're talking about now with what we were talking about before, right? I think it's a bit of a race between consumer sophistication and, you know, the, you know, we had we had Cake on the podcast yesterday, right? And their whole business is basically made of taking something that's complicated, making it easier for the user. And so, I mean, that's definitely the next wave of innovation, so to say, right, is to get users more comfortable with what is a very, very complicated technology, as well as, you know, the users becoming more sophisticated themselves. But it's a race between that trend and I think the regulatory stuff, because I think, you know, with flows, um, yeah, I mean, money will flow in kind of the path of least resistance right now in Indonesia because of the way that the regulatory regimes are set up and specific specific rules that Pandu already mentioned earlier, money flows, a lot of it flows outside. I think the vast majority of it flows outside. And we saw that ever since they made a certain, you know, change to the rule in May of 22, right? And so, um, I mean, it's a bit of a race. I think it, we, I mean, I think we all, our duty is to kind of make sure that the regulators are making the right decisions that are not harming local businesses. And so I think the number one thing from the Indonesian local businesses side, I think we, all the exchanges here are kind of aligned that, yeah, if, if, if some of those flows based on some rules were to be stopped and it made you, you know, you made it harder to send money outside, then I think the Indonesian market would grow multiple fold <laughs> overnight. But yeah, I mean, I, from, again, from the regulated point of view, I can totally see how that's, yeah, there's almost no right decision to be made right now. It's not obvious. So uh, yeah, hopefully we're moving in the right direction. 